Podcast. I'm Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield, and we're going to be discussing The Children, which is the finale of Season 4 of Game of Thrones. Um, so last week we uh, had a little bit of a... Uh, we, we gave a little bit of an ad for this this finale. I know that you were very excited <laughs> for it. I know I was excited to see what would happen, uh, how the... Uh, these stories would sort of come to the come to a head, and uh, I uh, I think they delivered on a lot of fronts. But anyway, I'd like to I'd like to get your thoughts because I think you had the most immediate reaction to this episode, and then maybe we can delve into just sort of as a whole, and we can delve into the uh, the more the specifics uh, after that. Yeah, um, <laughs> I did hype this episode up a lot on our last podcast, um, and it's weird. Well, I I'm more curious to get your reaction because. Um, <laughs> This episode included, uh, content-wise, 90% of the really exciting stuff that I thought they were going to do, but importance-wise, like, 30%. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Like, they, well, I mean, I'm sure you've probably, if you're listening to this and you sort of heard about this on the internet by now, there was a thing, a big thing that they cut from this episode that everyone was kind of expecting them to do. I'm surprised they didn't do it. I think it would have made a lot of sense. It would have been very cool, but, yeah, you know, we can... We, we'll just talk about the episode on its own. Um, I thought it was good. It was really hard for me to separate um, the, you know, the books from it in this instance more than it is usually. And I think the reason for that is that this episode, more than any other that I can remember, barely resembles the books. Huh. Like, the you know, we get these scenes that... Um, are not even in the books that they're 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 just implied. We get these very, especially with the Tyrion stuff, some very you know relevant and and um, powerful changes to how those events go down. Um, so, I, which we'll get into. But yeah, it's it's a, it's a strange episode for me to approach, and it's kind of but, but like just taken on its own as an episode of this show. I think it's good, maybe a little crowded, but. One of the better finales really? I think they've done. Really, you thought it was crowded. I actually didn't. I didn't feel it was very crowded at all. I, I think this was, what happened in the finale of season three. I know how it ended. I remember really enjoying the ending. Um, oh shoot! Yeah, hang on. Um, well, I was, I the one scene I remember is um, Roos and uh, Walder Frey talking about the just the aftermath of the red. Right. They they sort of give a little bit of a conclusion to that, and then I know that. Um, Daenerys frees a bunch of slaves, and that's a big deal. Um, and I, again, I really thought that ending was awesome. It had like a new theme that we hadn't really heard before, um, uh, musically, um, and so that was really cool. And uh, yeah, so I really oh, enjoyed. Well, we get um, uh, Davos telling Stannis that he has to go to the Wall, which was one full season ago, and they never commented on it. This oh season my gosh! Until it did, they, did they say that? Yeah, that was the last season finale. Wow, because I was that was out of nowhere for me. I think that was the goal <laughs> they wanted you to be surprised when they showed up, even though they said it already. But yeah, I think it was in the previously on, which kind of gave it away. Um, that, which, by the way, if, if that was the first scene, so maybe we want to jump right in. Um, that I, was I what I was talking about last week. I didn't actually see the. Um, oh, okay. The previously on, so that's so probably it's, better. So for me, it was like what? Um, so yeah, yeah. So that was um, you were talking about it last week. So in terms of just. This episode, I don't know what this thing is that you said um, would you thought would be in it. Obviously, because I haven't read the books. But um, first of all, I thought this episode in general, I thought it was better than last week. So there's that. Um, 
So there's that, and then there's also, we talked about how last week we, we didn't feel like it was really justified that it was a full episode of this battle. Um, and I think they could have easily shortened what happened and then added this last part in, because it felt like a tail end to the battle. You're right. Um, and then you would have had time to put in whatever this thing is that um, you probably could have fit in, or fleshed out some of the other scenes more. I know there's a little bit more to the Tyrion scene that uh, was in the book that explained his murderous rampage a little bit better. Like I said, we'll get into that later. Um, or like you said. So, um, but yeah, so why don't, why don't we start at the wall um, and uh, and the encounter with Mance Rayder and uh, Jon Snow? Yeah, here's the thing about this scene. Um, <laughs> I was wondering how they would handle this after last week because this, and I'm sure you can tell, this should have been the last scene of the last episode. And I was wondering what could have possibly possessed them to cut it and move it here. And I, the only thing I could imagine was that it was just too long for some reason. I but it's not. It's like a three-minute scene. It's really quick. They could have put it in. It was. It fit. It made sense. Um, I think the reason they did it, and this is going to sound stupid, but I think this is true. If this episode is called The Children, and I know there's a lot of meanings to that in this episode... Uh, this is Jon Snow finally talking about Ned Stark for the first time, and so maybe that's why. Um, that's true, and that's a great moment. It is um, a great moment. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about that is that th- this is a scene of um, Jon, in a lot of ways, coming into his own, which we get with a lot of the Stark kids in this episode, or this season, too, with Sansa. Right. Because obviously we know he's lying to Stannis um, about what, Ned Stark would have done with Mance Raider. Mance Raider is a deserter of the Night's Watch. Ned Stark would have killed him. Right. So it, that's a great moment because Stannis, you know, John is not is taking this responsibility on um, himself. Yeah. Exactly, and saying, "Well, you know, this is what I know is right, regardless of what my father would have done." Right. And so that's a really good moment, and it's subtle. They don't overplay it. Right, yeah, no, I totally agree. I thought it was very good. The other thing is I thought the scale of the um, of Stannis' army arriving felt very large. You suddenly got the impression that there was this huge army out front, um, in front of the wall, and I think that was really useful because uh, we talked about that it felt like it was sort of a small army, uh, despite the fact what we, we had been told it was 100,000 people. Um, and again, that also would have helped give scale and sense of whatever to the, to the, to the battle and and maybe maybe they saw a cut of it and saw it all together and thought it didn't really flow well. I don't know, but it seemed a little weird to like it worked fine. Like you, it's fine. It just it doesn't it doesn't really provide its own doesn't justify itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, and well, and especially because we get other scenes at the wall. Um, right, the burning know, so, of the dead and the the funeral and the, yeah, it's not like they didn't have. It, it, I think it would be different with the scene if they just didn't have anything else to do at the wall this season. So, like, so no, they wanted to keep something right. for the finale, just so we have something with them. Um, and, like, for instance, we don't have anything with Sansa this episode. Right. Because you know, there's I was just nothing say, else to do with her this season. I was going to say, Sansa uh, was completely absent. Uh, you know, her last thing was coming down the stairs in that uh, episode a few episodes ago, but that, that was it. That was the end. And, well, and that's tough, especially because... Um, well, we'll get into with when we get to Bran, uh, just number of published chapters left for some characters. Right. Uh, not many with Sansa, uh, which is probably why, because next season they're going to have to start going into the unwritten stuff or just making stuff up to stall with her. So I can kind of understand why they didn't want to do anything in this episode if they didn't have to. Right. 
It's a, you know, it was a good place to end the season where we left her, I think. Oh, so, no, fine. It's just, it was a while ago, so it's kind of, you know, again, you're, you're getting into those timeline discrepancy things. Um, just because we're not, you know, we got her finale a while ago, and so, like, what's been going on with her since then, you know? Um, but yes, yeah, and and so, yeah, I, I like the scene at the wall. I thought it was cool. I thought the relationship between John and Mance was really interesting as well. Um, their sort of mutual respect... Um, but also hatred, but also, um, you know, Jon Snow is still grateful to him for not killing him, and I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting, their, uh, their conversation, uh, and then how that plays into the conversation with Stannis, who's now finally part of the picture again, which is also a big deal, because he's been so, for lack of a better word, boring, uh, and so now he's sort of been thrown back into Westeros, and that's really, I think that's a big deal. This is finally the episode where we got the Stannis that I know I've been waiting to see. Like, I've been waiting and waiting for this version of Stannis that the show... I don't know. I, I, I get the impression that the showrunners just don't like Stannis. I really do. Because they, all the time... I've talked to book readers who don't like Stannis, though. You know, he's, he's kind of... He's hateful. a controversial character, yeah. but in the, in the books, at least he's interesting. He's a more... He's, a, in a weird way, a more fun character to read, just because he has this weirdly sarcastic manner but like in a very straightforward serious way like he's not trying to make you laugh he's just kind of being weirdly condescending right and he's just in the show version is is really he's whiny and and he doesn't really make any decisions unto himself he just kind of listens to what melisandre and davos have to say right he's not a decisive character it's a really disappointing version but this is finally a moment where we get this very you know he's making a strong move a strong play and doing seemingly of his some, own of his own intention. Yeah, and doing something that dramatically shifts, you know, the, the storyline of just this uh, continent. Right. Finally, you know, finally we've all this time we've been spending with Stannis seems to pay off in some way. It's also what's interesting is it doesn't feel like a rehash because it's a um, it's a land invasion or whatever he is doing, but uh, it's not like a a repeat of the attack on on Blackwater. That's true, yeah. Um, <laughs> smart on his part, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think they were looking for a, a second, uh, you know, a second uh, showing of that um, particular battle. But, um, yeah, so I, th- I thought that was a good scene. Uh, I thought the scene with Tormund was a little random. Um, like, I don't know how necessary it was uh, to give... Again, I just felt like a, cl- a closure to the previous episode. But I think that scene with Tormund, where they're talking about Egret, is sort of... Even Egret's even brought up by Mance Raider. I don't know why he. It seems like a small thing for Mance Raider to be bringing up, but I, I just find the like the focus on uh, Egret to be the showrunners like really thinking we really need a conclusion or we really need like a follow up to it because we were so invested and so destroyed by it. But I just wasn't. So I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I agree. I, actually, I will say this: when John burns her body, that was the first yes, moment that was a good one. Where I was like, "All right, this is a good payoff. This means yes. you know." But that was that's really all you emotionally. need. But they, they, there's three different references to Egret throughout the episode, and that's and, true. And while here's here's the sort of the weird paradox in my mind, I think the actress deserved it. I think she was awesome and she did a really good job, and and I thought that was all uh, well deserved. It's the character, and it's as portrayed in the in the show, that um, it seemed a little uneven. But we'll leave that aside for now. I, I mean, I I thought it was um, 
they did a they did a good job sending her off for better or for worse. Uh, whether or not the character deserved it because of how little she was on screen uh, is a separate issue. But uh, but I always liked she was one of my I, she was one of the, my favorite parts of season three. So you know, to each their own. Um, and then so from there we go to. Um, I guess I think King's Landing is the next scene where we see the mountain again. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. What's interesting about this scene is this episode does two things for two kind of. Um, uh, I hesitate to say major theories in the uh, book reader community because there's a lot of uh, sarcasm <laughs> that running running through the community in terms of these theories um, because they're all you know plausible is a weird word to use, but you know, plausible enough that they, there's no reason that they could not happen. Right. But they're also completely ridiculous. Right. And, um, this scene with the mountain not, is not in the books and it seems, it weirdly like confirms one of them. It's weird because like, this is a scene that we, uh, you always kind of assume happens, um, because we know that Kyburn is a little, is unorthodox in his, um, treatments uh which is why he was uh, kicked out of the citadel so it's cool that we're kind of that the showrunners are giving us this scene maybe just as a as a kind of tease to the readers um saying look you know we uh, we're we're doing this thing that we all you call you all kind of assumed happened and it also kind of ties in with george r, r. martin's philosophy about uh, ending stories which i was reading recently where he said he doesn't want to end the story in a way that uh, in a way like uh, Lost. And the reason he said that Lost was disappointing to a lot of people, is he thinks, is that it was so uh, contrary to the theories that they had. Right. And that was, you know, they were disappointed that the theories that they had clung to for years were completely invalidated by what the show was actually doing. So he wants to write an ending that doesn't do that and that is works with the understanding that the fans have of the books. And I think that's that's what the show is playing into, I think, in this. How, and what it doesn't play into later, which, and we'll talk about that later. Right, right. And, you know, that's actually interesting. That's the same with True Detective. There were all those crazy theories about the Yellow King and everything. And That, exactly. Yeah. And that, that is, nope. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's exactly what uh, you would think uh, from the beginning and not, not, not this in-depth uh, sort of theorized uh, conclusion um, that everyone was, was sort of coming to. Um, but yeah, so... This scene was weird to me. I have no idea who that doctor guy was who was, you know, she's, you know, they're like, this, you know, he was thrown out of the city. He's not a, he's not, you know, he's an orthodox doctor, yada, yada, yada. But who, who is he? Is, was he in the show before? Yeah, he, I, I believe the show has used him before. He uh, fixes up Jamie's hand. Oh, okay. Cut off, and that's how he comes to King's Landing. I think that's how the show does it. Um, but he, yeah, he's ex- He's presented as this former maester who was, um, you know, they took away his, his chain because of these implied, these weird experiments that he would do. Right. These unethical experiments. Um, so, yeah, I don't blame you for not remembering who he is because the show, I don't think they've even shown him since last season. Um, and, and I think they mentioned him once uh in the wedding episode, maybe like Pycelle is talking to Cersei and Cersei says something about him and he goes, Oh, you know, Kyburn, you can't do that. Blah, 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 which we get uh, echoed in this episode, obviously. Right, right, right. But it's, I think it's another example of 
these characters, you know, I, I kind of, I refute the argument that the show has too many characters a lot of the time, because <laughs> I, I do think that the show is, I think it's easy to keep up with, really, if you are paying attention. But this is an example of just, like, if you don't know, are we really expected to just know who this person is if we don't already know that he has a part in the story? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not, um, I'm not somebody who thinks that there's too many characters. I think it's too many storylines, you know? I think there's too much go. I mean, we can get into that a little later, maybe, but, um, or maybe in a discussion of the whole season, but I think that it's not so much that there's too many characters. You can have 5,000 characters as long as they all have, you know, screen time, I can get to know them and I can care about them. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't care how many, but it's, it's hard. It's really hard to do, and you better really have your, your ducks in a row to do that. You know, some people, some writers can't handle more than, like, two or three characters, and again, that's fine, too. Um, some writers can handle, you know, eight or ten or whatever. Um, so for me, I think that it's uh, uh, so it, it's so it's not really so much that it's really that these, these little side characters that are um, picked up and dropped and picked up and dropped and you know we'll never hear from them again. And like, what about that that pirate guy who just came back all of a sudden for Stannis and a couple episodes ago, uh, a couple of episodes ago, who who helped them with Blackwater, I believe. Mm. Um, and he was, like, this big intro that he had in season two, and then wasn't really a major character. You know, there's, a, the, um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's just, for me, it's it's not so much that there's too many characters, but, like, so, and, and, and I didn't mind that this guy, I'd never heard of this guy before, but, um, it seemed a little random. I also don't really know what they're doing with the mountain. I guess he's still alive, and he's gonna be, like, you know, Franken-Mountain or something, uh, you know, some <laughs> weird, you know, uh, reanimated dead kind of character. It seems a little strange, a little, uh, a little, it seemed a little goofy to be quite honest. Um, it does. Yeah. Well, Kyburn is such a weird, just in his manner is such a weirdly goofy kind of character. Um, and the day it definitely, I get the feeling that they're, that they're giving us this scene just in case they want to do something with the mountain later. Right. Um, and not necessarily like, um, setting something up but just like well if we want ever want to do this thing then you know we have left ourselves open to it but otherwise you know otherwise we can just say well you know he's being experimented on by kyburn forever well so it is, it's a, it possible, is a big scene it's possible that it's um setting up something that again isn't in the books yet but maybe you know maybe the final book is you know the mountain comes in and kills everyone and then dies <laughs> you know, and and they just want to make sure that everyone knows he's not dead or something. That's I, true, yeah. What I did like is that I didn't actually, I don't know if this was made clear in the, uh, the Mount, uh, the Mountain and the Viper episode. Yeah. Um, but I didn't realize that the, his weapon was poisoned. I thought that was very cool and made a lot more sense, um, <laughs> uh, ultimately. <laughs> Especially since that means, like, even if he dies, he gets to still kill, um, his, his killer which is a kind of an awesome, um, an awesome, uh, sort of touch. That it does validate him. Yeah. Yeah. With, and with his, his actions at the end of the fight and his title as the Viper. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so that was, uh, so that was kind of cool. And then we got a lot of Cersei this episode too. Uh, it, it seemed like, um, sort of following from that scene with the mountain. Uh, how did, how did you, was this in the book? Was there a lot of this? I felt like this was sort of a big, uh, moment for her. Yeah, and um, I don't think so. And I, you know, these scenes with Cersei, it seemed like one of those things that um, 
we're just kind of checking in with Cersei because it's the finale, right. and we should really do something with Cersei. Although I will say her scene with Tywin is great because this is the kind of scene that we should get before Tywin is killed. Yeah. You know, this, you know, so we know, it, it, it really seems like, speaking of characters the showrunners hate, uh, Tywin in this episode, not only is he murdered on the toilet, um, which I wasn't, which is in the books and I wasn't sure they were going to do it, but I'm very happy they did. Um, but hours seemingly before he's murdered, he's told that his entire legacy is a lie and completely destroyed. So not a great episode for Tywin. No, it's not. And also you have Cersei not listening to him, even though she she did listen to him for almost everything else, including marrying Robert and things like that. Um, but you also have, you have the, first of all, I really am amazed that the way they played it was a little weird with her telling him uh, what, with Cersei telling Tywin what um, the situation was with her and Jamie, but... Uh, I thought that was a little weird, just because I had no idea he didn't know. I thought he was just pretending it wasn't a thing. Uh, or maybe he was, but they didn't really play it like that. It wasn't like he was in denial. It was like he was not, like he honestly didn't know. And then hearing the news for the first time, like it's suddenly a revelation. He still wasn't willing to accept it. But I thought that was a little odd. He's a very smart guy. I'm sure he was cognizant and just decided to pretend like it was i don't know but i thought that was that was a little strange but there was of, an element of denial i think because um that was certainly there yes he said i mean he's such a uh like we said before such a practical guy right that part of me th- thinks and I, I think this scene um offers some pretty strong evidence that he even if he didn't even if he kind of assumed or thought that that w- was what was going on he also thought that well i you know, there's no actual evidence to support this, so there's no reason for me to believe it if I don't want to believe it. Right. But now he has his daughter openly coming out and saying this is what the truth is, right. and he's forced to confront it. Although, I'm surprised he thinks that, um, because, like, you know, Ned Stark figured it out, and Tywin's supposed to be super bright, you know. Not that Ned Stark was stupid, but, you know, he he sort of figured it out, although it kind of took him being led to the book to be very clear uh, in the first season. Uh, there is some tenuous evidence, though, if we think back to it. What? Um, the, that is, the, hair, the, kids the, are all, the kids are all blonde? I don't know. That's that's not normal. I mean, in the, for what they know about biology, that probably is pretty strong evidence. <laughs> but well, maybe they don't. I could see right. Tywin kind of brushing that off, you know, because I'm sure they know that, well, if the mom has blonde hair, then maybe the kids could, yeah? I, it, and it took Ned kind of delving into Robert's line <laughs> to figure it out. To figure it out. Yeah, no, okay. I mean, I, I thought it was a little strange, but in terms of Tywin sort of getting his... His kids all abandoned him in this episode. Um, first Cersei, and then uh, Cersei and Jaime together, and then um, and then Jaime frees Tyrion, which Tywin figures out pretty quickly, and then Tyrion kills him. So it's... Uh, yeah, he all of his kids sort of abandoned him, which is a good ending for... Uh, uh, for someone who was so focused on family, and also a great, um, it was very cheeky of them to release this on Father's Day as well. Yep. <laughs> um, which I, I didn't, uh, really put together until I, I thought about it, and then I thought, well, that was, uh, that was kind of brutal, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was, uh, so that was good. So, so did you want to talk a little bit about, um, uh, well, so, and then after, after Cersei talks to Tywin, she goes to Jamie and they decide, and she says, I don't, you know, care who knows, I don't care if we tell everyone, you know, 
it's whatever. Uh, Which is a if that's a weird callback to the rape scene in episode three. Um, I don't know because she keeps saying just like he did in that scene. I don't care. I don't care over his objections. So is that what they were? setting up with that scene like is oh. that really is it was that the point of that scene that we talked so much about back then because that's a long walk for a small glass of water yes it uh, really is i don't think so i think you might be reading into that a little bit um yeah it seems like i don't know it seems like a lot of work to put into something that's only like a, a quick parallel dialogue um but if if that's what it is i wasn't even thinking about that to be honest um I think the one thing we can confirm about that now that we finished the whole season and we're absolutely sure, um, unless this scene happens to be the reasoning uh, behind it, um, there is no uh, real justification for that scene at all. And there was no like big thing they were changing in the show to fix, um, to, to justify that scene being told so differently than it was in the book um, from that episode a couple episodes ago. Unless, you know, the one thing it could be is that maybe that scene... So that scene, as far as we saw it, and the way we saw it um, was, I think, totally legitimate and actually is the way most people saw it uh, as, uh, as, as rape or sexual assault, um, was, was terrible. But I, I think that maybe the showrunners thought that it was Jamie saying, I don't care who sees us because it's, you know, it wasn't, I don't care about what you want. I don't, it's, or it was, but not so much that I don't care about what you want um, in terms of us not being found out and not so much, I don't care about what you want in terms of whether or not we're going to be together. You see what I'm saying? And no, so I maybe, get it. Yeah. I think so if that's what that's, yeah. but that was very unclear and very weird way to, to communicate that. If that was what, cause Jamie doesn't ever talk about it again. He doesn't go around saying, why can't we tell people? Why can't we tell people? You know, we should just tell people who cares. That doesn't seem, it seems more like he's like, I don't care who sees because I want this now and I'm going to do it regardless, which is not the same thing at all. Yeah, I mean, it is... The, the the problem is that it's a rape scene. Like, there's no getting around it. Oh, no, it, it absolutely is. But, it, yeah, and that's a weird... I think you. I think I agree. You're right. That is probably what they were going for with that scene. Um, and... But... I, I can't... I just can't get my head around that scene. <laughs> I really can't. Even all these weeks later. It just baffles. Oh, it's still, it's still. I still think they, I still think they should change it in the the home edition or in future editions of the episode. I think there's a lot of things they should do. Um, I just, I'm trying to figure out what because you know they were holding their playing their cards close to their chest, trying to, you know, answer questions about it. And I wonder if they were just thinking, no, no, no. See, we're gonna have this scene later with Cersei, and it's a parallel scene, and it's it's Jamie at first didn't care, and now Cersei doesn't care. Now they can just tell everyone, which. Again, weird, and I didn't know that was something Jamie wanted to do. And also, that scene did not communicate that at all. So, um, I think. Well, has Jamie talked about? Because um, I, I feel like I remember a scene where Jamie says something like, "We should just. Why can't we tell people?" And it's in Cersei, or maybe it's maybe it's the other way around. But I feel like they have talked about this before. Really? And the reasoning was that the Targaryens always married brother to sister, so why should we care? It might have been oh, Cersei making the argument. It might have been Jamie. I'm not sure who. It would make more sense, I guess, if it was Cersei based on what she does tonight. But it would also make more sense if it was Jamie based on, um, you know, yeah, the, yeah. the kind of just the re- making the scene a reversal. Um, so, yeah, it's it is it is just a weird scene. And it's, it's going to be interesting to see where they go with it, I guess, next season. 
Um, well, I guess the implication is that, you know, they're going to try and... I don't know, because I haven't read the books. Obviously, you might have a better idea here, but um, the way it played off to me as a viewer, it almost seems like now Tywin's gone, Tyrion's booking it. Um, the implication seems to be that, that Cersei and Jaime would want to rule as, like, a family unit with Tommen, and that's their goal. And they want to, like, appear normal, as normal as a brother and sister, husband, wife pairing could possibly be, which seems odd, but that was the impression I got. Or at least that's the, that's the ideal for them. Um, that's possible. Um, Jamie does look really uncomfortable with the fact that she told Tywin, though. And the reason that he... Um, uh, decides to disregard that is because she kisses his golden hand and it's like i think that's a moment where he's finally you know she because she appears to accept this you know part of him this thing that he's been struggling with all season uh he's immediately like he just forgets about everything else because he's so happy about that and obviously she's manipulating him in that way but he was very clearly not on board with the idea that she uh, told Tywin about them. So, and, you know, now that Tywin's dead, who knows what where that story is going to go. Right. And, I, you know, actually about the Golden Hand, I think that might be why this season or this episode was so interesting for Jamie as well, because, you know, he, he might not be able to fight, but he's still able to do things for, to, you know, to help Tyrion. Um, and that's what he does when he when he frees him from jail. You know, he, he may only have one hand, but he still manages to get his brother out, which is a big deal. Um, so yeah, how did you feel about the, the Tyrion scene, the, the big Tyrion scene where he just seems to suddenly go crazy? Um, well, do you want to talk about that or do you want to get to, cause that well, is the last scene, right? It, it's the last scene of the whole show. It, it's the second to last scene. I think it's, it's right at the end. Okay. All right. We can, we can come back to that. In we, a I, mean, I, I mean, yeah, I, that, it just it, seemed like a, it followed, but you, it does. You're right. I mean, well, the weird thing—we can't. Well, let's talk about it. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> the weird thing about that scene is that it doesn't follow with Jamie from what we've just seen. It just—it does seem kind of weird that you know, it's not like Jamie has a moment earlier in the episode where you know, something happens and he decides to spring Tyrion. He just kind of shows up and he's like, "Ah, I'm rescuing you." Right, and he does. <laughs> right, although, and and you're right. I, I'm finding a theme here with the golden hand that's that's not like expressly shown in the show. I forgot that Cersei even kissed his golden hand. You know what I mean? But um, the fact that he can do that, you know, he's like he's not completely agentless just because he doesn't he can't fight anymore. And I think that that's important for him to realize. But I agree that um, you're right. It doesn't. It seems apropos of, of not a whole lot. Uh, as does Tyrion's little rampage, which. I found out um, had more context to it in the books. Much, much more. Um, um, and like, this is the yeah. There's a this there's is... a whole. I remember earlier in this this season or last season we had the whole backstory about um, the first person that Tyrion really loved, and um, apparently there's a follow up to that story. Yeah, we got that all the way back in season one. Oh, that was season one. Okay, all the way back when the when he first met Shay, actually. Oh, okay. And I think there was a reference like a sly reference to it maybe earlier this season but yeah the whole what happens and i i again this is something like i don't know why they didn't just do this except maybe for running time when jamie frees Tyrion, they have a long conversation right and part of one of the things that jamie tells Tyrion is that um 
he's gone through his whole life thinking that this woman he married was just a prostitute. Right. Um, and it was all a lie. And Jamie tells Tyrion that it wasn't and that she was actually a real person who loved him. Right. She just wasn't, yeah. t- you know, Tywin approved. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why Tywin did what he did. And this is crushing. And that's why he goes up to the Tower of the Hand to confront Tywin. Right. And and that's that's the there's a big deal there um, uh, as well that it's sort of there's a lot of there's a lot of meaning behind it because the implication is that Tyrion's whole life he he's thought that you know his his behavior with women and the way that he you know he's always attracted to prostitutes and things like that or at least that's what he believes is because I've always been this way but it turns out that's not true and so like his whole life has been centered around this thing that's not even you know part of his identity necessarily um and so you know he's he's there's a lot of resentment, not just in the fact that he lost the first person he loved because of uh, because of Tywin, um, but there's shame and there's a lot of other things play, at play, which which justify this, you know, because when he started just going crazy, it feels it feels fine in the context of the show because he's been there's why wouldn't you you know take this opportunity to quickly go kill a few people I why not he's booking it, um, but at the same time I think there was no immediate trigger which seems a little odd. Yeah, yeah, it's As opposed true. to just and, escaping, yeah. Yeah, and um, the conversation that he has with Tywin at the very end, when he says, I loved her, and Tywin says, who? And he says, Shay. Uh, that was Taisha in the book. And that was the whole impetus for that conversation and the entire impetus for Tyrion's storyline going forward. Right. Um, so, although I will say, um, Tyrion spends most of the fifth book echoing this line that Tywin says to him, and he just says it like... It, over in his head, I swear to God, 20 times a chapter. It's so annoying, and I will not be sad to see that go. Um, but, yeah, it is, I think it makes sense mostly. Like, I'm mostly comfortable with the way the Tywin stuff goes down. I'm a little rockier with the way the stuff, the Shea stuff goes down. Um, especially just, I don't know. How did, how did you feel about the Shea scene? Um, I believed it. I don't know. I, I think I gotta I'm gonna be completely honest here. I was actually relieved uh, when she died because the last time she left, she came back, you know. And I was like, oh, come on, Moshe. Um, I'm like, now at least she's she's really gone. Uh, and that was probably the least charitable thought I've had uh, about a character in a show. But I just don't find her interesting at all. I don't understand the. I understood the appeal maybe in the first season. Then I started stop. You know, I, I started absolutely uh, not being able to sympathize at all with with Tyrion. So I, you know, and the fact that she's sleeping with Tywin, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't get the. I don't. I never got the attraction. I never got the the uh, significance of her as a per. Like I don't know what she added to Tyrion's life. I don't. You know, there's just a lot of weird things there, and I understand his. Uh, anger at her. I don't know if it was so far as to kill her. And I actually, the other thing I found very weird is that they make a big deal this season. They keep talking about how, you know, even Jamie says, you know, like, you know, Tyrion's a lot of things, but a murderer, you know, and, and that's a very clear statement. And I believed, you know, as a viewer, I was like, yes, you're right. Tyrion's more methodical, he might scheme, he might do a lot of things, but he's probably not going to kill someone because that's crazy. So you really need to justify it if he's going to go on a killing rampage. And 
well, I can point to things why, you know, reasons why he would want to kill, you know, person X, Y, and Z. I don't know if it was, like, given... We weren't given an immediate, like, turn, which would be, you know, the part where he snaps. There was no snap. It was just him going, should I go up the stairs? Or should I go and kill a bunch of people first? And he just sort of does it. And there's no, you know, there's no, like, moment. And I think that the conversation with Jamie would have helped. Yeah, well, I think also the problem is that Tyrion has not been as bitter as maybe he should have been this season. Right. I think, you know, he should have been very discouraged by the way he's been treated. And I think we talked about this in uh, the Mountain and the Viper episode, where this is a situation that Tyrion is in where he cannot use his intellect to get out of it. And that's the first time that he's had to confront that, where the world is just unfair to him and he can't get around that. And his reaction to that has been pretty, is muted. Like, we haven't gotten really... an understanding of the way he's emotionally dealing with this other than, you know... Except for the Beatles. I mean, I, I guess if we I mean, bring yeah. it back to the Beatles, maybe maybe this was him, you know, switching off his brain and just killing people because, you know, that's just well, yeah, what he's that's doing. that's true, yeah. It's like, because also we talked about that, about that scene. It's like, if this is him acknowledging that people can just kill people and it doesn't matter then who cares? I'll just, I'll just go up there and... Right, it's, it's a very anti-intellectual approach to what, you know, shooting someone with a crossbow is a very, it's not him, that's Joffrey, you know, that's other characters, that's not his style. So, um, so maybe that's what it is, it's, it's a connect, he connects back to that. You know, and that's, <coughs> I think that's really the problem here, is that, like, um, like that thing with Jamie and the Golden Hand, or you know whatever the through line is supposed to be with Cersei and Jamie that we were supposed to be picking up on to justify any of those scenes, um, or any of these things, is that when you have shows that you know won't come back to the same story for you know sometimes a whole episode, you really got to make it a little bit more blunt and obvious because it's going to be tough to follow it. You know, I I don't want to be you know I don't want the show to talk down to the audience, but at the same time sometimes you know. There are things we would never have known about. You know, John talking to Egret last episode and being like, or, or Egret says, you know, do you remember the cave? Or we should have stayed in the cave. And you're just like, what What cave? Oh, that cave. The thing you showed us previously on. I shouldn't need a previously on for the show to work, you know? So there's a lot of that. And, and that, that brings me back to what I was saying last in our last podcast, that, you know, there must be some way to do this a little bit more effectively where we either be more blunt, more obvious, or give us more airtime with certain characters, or pare the stories down a little bit so that it's a little bit less... Um, well, the way to do it is I don't not, know. N- not split a book into two seasons. That's probably part of it, too. <laughs> that's really what's been... If there's been a problem with this season in that regard, that's been it, is that if we had gotten seasons three and four as one continuous chunk, you know, or even just pare it down to ten episodes, or fifteen episodes... It would have been a lot easier to swallow, and it would have been you wouldn't have had these moments where you're trying to think back and like, what was their, you know, what was the nature of their relationship? What was the, what's the emotional through line that I'm supposed to be connecting to, and especially with John and Egret. Um, so hopefully, and by the way, that's also a problem that the books had with books four and five. Because they split their story into two, right? Exactly, yeah. So, And that's what might be a problem uh, with book six, whenever that comes out, where we haven't gotten a chapter with Sansa in it since 2005. Wow. Um, and that's something that the show is going to remedy. Well, that's something the show will help whenever book six comes out, but it's also that's something that the show will remedy next season because 
I can only assume they're going to combine books four and five into one continuous story because it would be so stupid not to. Right. So I can't, I'm sure they I will. Can't think of a reason why they wouldn't. Um, so yeah, I think that maybe that's just kind of the story of season four is like there are a lot of moments in season four that might have worked better if they had been just season three and they we've been able to watch week to week like if, if the john stuff if if it had been part of the same season and the johnny decret stuff we got last week was something we were meant to remember from a few a month or two ago and not a year or more ago right i think it would have it definitely would have worked a lot better you know i think you know the other thing too uh which is true is that and this should not be a requirement and this is not a uh uh, this is not, a, I'm not excusing it, but if you go back and watch, cause you know, there are shows that, that maintain multiple storylines and things like that and are still compelling and, and you don't need to see them all at once, but there are shows, um, and this might be one of them that just work better when you like just sit down and binge watch a full season. And so maybe if you were to sit, to sit down and watch all of season three and four consecutively, it would make a lot of sense. You'd, you totally know what they were talking about. But you know it's been a year, so I don't know. I don't. I don't remember little things from last season, and it feels like you're picking up threads without uh, that, that that we haven't looked at in in a long time, in many many months. So there was a little bit of there definitely was a little bit of that this season, uh, despite the fact that I enjoyed it in general. Um, but there was one more thing in the uh, Tyrion storyline that I think we should talk about. Uh, I think I really liked the very end. Uh, it's actually my favorite part. I, I, so this is something the show doesn't do almost ever, um, which is too bad. But some of the best moments in television in general have been moments without dialogue, not with. And I think uh, this is one of them. When when Varys brings Tyrion, uh, he puts him in the little box and puts him on the on the ship, um, and then the bells ring. And this is all a big Varys moment. Um, this is Conleth Hill's, like, I, I really enjoyed it, um, where he, he sees the bells ring, he knows what Tyrion did, and he turns around and goes right back onto the ship and says, I guess I'm leaving. Uh, but again, without saying anything. Uh, it's all, you know, very visual and, and body language, and I thought that was awesome. Really well done. That, that was fantastic. I loved that moment. And by the way, uh, I don't... Varys gets on the ship with Tyrion, and he's traveling with Tyrion, which is interesting because... Um, after this point in the books, Varys disappears. We don't see him anymore. Oh. And it's because, you know, he was involved with springing Tyrion and by association, the murder of the Hand of the King. So he's, we assume, just in hiding. So it's interesting that we'll get to actually see him next season. And it makes sense because he's a, you know, popular character and it's a character that they've done a lot with. And, but to have him spend some time with Tyrion and to have Tyrion, you know, have someone have a familiar face with him, you know, on this journey to wherever they're going, um, presumably far away from anyone who knows what Tyrion looks like. Right. Um, so, yeah. I assume good, they're going to Essos because I don't know where else they'd go, you know. That's, I think that's a good assumption because, yeah, I mean, you've killed the Hand of the King of Westeros. It makes sense that that's where you would go to not Westeros anymore. Yeah, exactly. I mean, short of going to a place like, um, you know, Dragonstone or, or, like, some island, I think that pretty much the only option really is to go to Essos. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, and uh, and so I think uh, from there, we, we speaking of Essos, we, we get a little bit of Daenerys this episode, too. Some great Daenerys stuff. Mm. Um, 
her storyline has been the most thematically sound of, of any of the others, I think, or at least the most thematically clear. Right. And, I think, and we get the conclusion of it in this episode where she starts the season, and we talked about this early on, um, she's on top of the world, she's conquering cities all over the place, she's taking control, she's extremely confident in what she's doing. And, you know, uh, freeing slaves is kind of her thing now, and it's something that she believes strongly in. And this is an episode where she's finally forced, we talked about, you know, I'm using this phrase again, forced to confront the truth of, you know, her, her situation and what it is to be a ruler, which is that, you know, having, doing something because of your ideals is not necessarily always the best thing to do for whatever the city you're ruling. And it's tough to forget to end of that mirrors, you know, the scene where she's realizing that her dragons have murdered a small child and she has to chain them up. And the symbolism of her having to put chains on her dragons and this whole thing, she's been, you know, the breaker of chains. That's her whole thing. Right. Is really powerful. Yeah. It's depressing. It's a depressing scene. And you, you almost get the impression that there's a, um, she's sort of signing her fate away with these dragons or doing something. I don't know. There's something there that, you know, there's one scene that I've always wanted to see in this. And I think that it would have been, this is a totally different path. I'm assuming than what's going on because of what we've seen so far, but I think it would be really cool if, um, there would be a, uh, it really, it would be really cool if there was like a scene where the dragon sort of, I know they're dragons and they're wild animals and everything, but there would be an awesome, it could be an awesome scene where they sort of, like, there's a scene where they all breathe fire on Daenerys or something, and sort of, that's how she wins their respect, um, not just by being their mother, but also being immune to fire or whatever, and so that's why they listen. It would also explain why the Targaryens were able to manage them, for the most part, in the past, or at least that's what it seems. So I think that would be really cool. Um, but we don't really get any sort of trust-building scene with the dragons, and there's really no relationship with the dragons that's really built, other than that they're, like, becoming more and more unreal, uh, unruling. Yeah, well, for the dragons, we haven't gotten much of this season, just in general. And I get it, because, you know, the special effects budget, and those dragons looked really good. They did. Um, and, but yeah, so it's it's disappointing that we don't get more dragons, but, you know, I, again, on an HBO budget... And the scenes that we do get with the dragons are really good, especially in this episode. Right, and they're important scenes, uh, I, for sure. Yeah, exactly. But do you think that maybe because we don't get the dragons as much that they aren't as powerful a force, seemingly, as they could be? Because I kind of feel like that. Um, I do. Uh, I like the fact that they reference the um, the artwork for this season. They actually talk about the what is it, the Great Shadow or something when they're referring to Drogon. Um, yeah. That was kind of cool. Uh, no, they, they've seemed very real. Um, I don't. I don't have a problem with that. It's just more that it's less that they're not real, more that they're not characterized enough, and they're not similar. They're well, not. That's kind of what I mean. Yeah. Their relationship to Daenerys isn't. You know, she's not like training them, learning how to ride one. Maybe they're certainly big enough. It seems to at least hold a person briefly. Um, she's not really considering that. I don't know if she knows that's what her relatives did back in the day. Um, so I don't know. I honestly have no idea what her, um, what 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 they're planning to do with this. I maybe they're just saving their big dragon moments for later because I'm assuming there will be. Um, and again, the other thing is, you know, they've got to really 
be careful because if they're running out of story for Daenerys, um, you know her character is going to be huge in the finale or whatever happens in this series, and so, um, and especially her dragons and everything's going to be a big part of it, uh, whatever form that takes. Um, the only thing I think that would be really funny would be, uh, totally anticlimactic, pissing everyone off if, uh, you know, one of her dragons just eats her, you know, one day, and then, you know, her storyline ends, and, and that's just the end of it. Um, but short of that happening, I think we, uh, she's gonna be huge, and, and they're got, they've gotta really decide what they're gonna do next, um, and I'm thinking next season we're gonna get a lot of, next season or the season after, we're gonna get a lot of Daenerys and the dragons, and there's gonna be a lot more building there. It's just so far... Uh, it made sense in the beginning when they were just babies, but there was that parental relationship. But then once they started getting bigger, they were sort of guards, but now they're just... It's not a lot for them to do. So, I don't know. I, I would prefer a little bit more uh, fleshing out of those characters, uh, of, the, of those dragons as characters, but I guess for now it makes sense. And it was it was still sad seeing her. Um, it was more scary. You know, I was more scared by that scene where she, she puts the dragons in the catacombs because it seemed depressing but also like these are these these dragons like you they haven't done anything to you but now you're directly opposing them so um that could be a problem yeah it's, well yeah it's a sad scene but it's also a foreboding scene right um especially exactly. when the dragons are screaming when she's leaving um because these are for as far as we know the good dragons of the three and it's really only drogon who's uh violent and really really aggressive right so that and that's really what's sad about it it's like obviously she can't do anything to drogon but they're kind of getting punished because she can't trust them anymore right right and it's also an important thing to state um for uh it's an important statement for the people to say that she did something about this problem um so that they can say you know her her uh her whatever they're her little fiefdom she's got going on so she can say like look this is what i did to sort of compensate for it because um you know i can't have my dragons like killing your your kids uh so that was uh i think i understood why she did it it's just i think that there will be consequences eventually um so that was sad that was a sad moment um and there was there was that symbolism there with the chains and things like that um especially since she is the breaker of change and that was the name of an episode earlier in this season um Ironically, in an episode where I don't think the dragons appear, which is kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, the, so the, before we get to the uh, to the very last sort of little storyline, which we get uh, in a couple of scenes, um, there's also the the big one uh, with 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 Bran. Yeah, finally, um, after however long he's been on this journey, he, he gets to the conclusion. He's finally not boring anymore. So that's yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I've you I've know, hated. I've, never... I've hated like every time they go back to him, it's just more. I'm like, oh, it's gonna be one of those episodes where we get more Bran. Yay! You know, they're just on a sled. You know, he's just being pulled around on a sled for. You know, it's just not. It's not my jam. That's funny. Well, you're not alone. I think that's the majority opinion is that Bran has been really boring thus far. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I mean, I like Bran. I like Hodor. Um, Jojen and Mira aren't terribly interesting, but they're uh, they're tolerable. Um, but definitely, this is this feels like finally Bran gets something to do that isn't being dragged around on a sled. And they really go all out. Um, this scene where they fight. This this scene outside the cave is just. In, it's it's the most insane thing the show has never done. 
Yeah. It's it's nuts. It's it's like Is it uh, in the book? It is. Well, here's the thing. It is in the books, but they're not they're just described as whites, like reanimated corpses. Okay, these not, are like skeletons, yeah. Not literally like Ray Harryhausen skeletons, which is yeah, they were like Ray Harryhausen skeletons. I think that's probably exactly what they were supposed to. I look think that's, like. that's definitely the reference point. I think, um, or like it, it was just—it looked like a heavy metal album cover, you know, yeah, yeah. fighting all these skeletons in the snow exactly, outside this yeah. gigantic tree with a face on it. It's an insane scene um, and a fun scene, and I li- and I really liked the way they dealt with it. Um, I did not like the fact that uh, the children, the child of the forest, can shoot fireballs. Uh, that was kind of weirdly out of nowhere. Um, I did not. Well, we'll get to Blood Raven later because we should really talk about the fact that Jojen is dead. Yes, he's dead. Well, no, no, he's not though. That was the thing. No, what? What are you talking about? He's dead, but they <laughs> they um, they show his eyes changing. It seemed to be that he was becoming a white or something at some point. Well, um, he, I thought that was um, him seeing the the thing that the child of the forest was throwing. But in any case, he, he was exposed. His eyes so turned he, blue. He was about to turn into a white. His eyes he definitely turned blue. Um, but yeah, maybe the, 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 the child of the forest threw a, um, well, yeah, if, if that's what happened, I'll, you know, that's probably why, um, uh, blew him up. But, but he, he doesn't die in the books, does he? No, that's what's even more baffling about this scene. Uh, or this, you know, everything about, you know, this, this entire, storyline in this episode Jojen is alive in the books and this is by the way the other theory uh there were a lot of prominent theories there's a one prominent theory about Jojen going forward and the way he plays into Bran's storyline uh out the window gone dead in the water because Jojen is exploded uh and the the thing is like all right on the one hand yes the the show is a different story from the books right 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 but you know I think it's a fair assumption to make and one that you kind of have to make that the showrunners aren't going to do anything or make any changes that will screw up the storyline in the future. So if they are willing to kill off Jojen, it's a fair assumption to make that Jojen has no more relevance to the story in the books. Oh, I see what you're saying. And by the way, um, (laughs) guess how many brand chapters there are left published? How many? One. Oh, there's one brand chapter left in the entire series. One, which is like I know we've and been... you know they have to follow up this storyline next season. Exactly. There's a lot of stuff to do, but you know, the, his whole thing was in book in the book five. He gets to the Three Eyed Raven, and then there's a chapter of them doing what they're going to do. But is that are they going to stretch the stuff in that chapter out for an entire season? They could conceivably, but yeah, it's like, wow. It, it really is a weird thing to think about. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and now I'm starting to think... Yeah, I guess we're going to start getting... I can't wait until we start getting into things that aren't in the book. Because I just think that'll be interesting for everyone. Um, okay, yeah, well... <laughs> I'm not super thrilled about it, but it will be interesting. Right, so... So, and then... So, the one thing I will say is this. Very first season. Got the Blu-ray. There was an extended. Uh, there was a. There's a, the Blu-ray features on these these sets are so awesome, and especially the first season I got. Um, I was looking at it, and it had. Uh, I was I was really interested in learning all about because you know if dragons are real, what are the other things that are in this you know universe that we can learn about? 
Um, and so in these special features, they had the whole history of Westeros. And I think I talked about this maybe in, in the, our first podcast, but they, uh, they do the history of Westeros, the arrival of the First Men, and they talk about the Children of the Forest. And the Children of the Forest are were sounded so interesting to me. I love that it doesn't feel like something we've seen before in other fantasy stories, unlike dragons and other things, and on magic and all that that nonsense. And it feels, honestly, it feels very, um, you know, sort of echoes druid, uh, you know, religion and things like that in, in, in interesting ways where it has a lot to do with nature. Um, so that they're going to, that they're using that in this, um, and the, the way they talk about it in this in this uh, special feature is they, they say, well, you know, no one's seen a child of the forest in a very long time. It's sort of assumed they're all dead or whatever. Um, so this is very exciting for me. Ironically, because this was one of my least favorite storylines previously, but uh, I love the fact that the children of the forest are a thing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's finally... Well, it's another example of just the scene kind of getting into the high fantasy elements yeah. of Game of Thrones more than any other storyline thus far, really. Uh, and obviously the stuff just at the wall has been kind of mired in that the entire time with the White Walkers. But, you know, this is a scene where we get fighting reanimated skeletons and then a, a you know, wood nymph who can shoot fireballs and then a, a psychic dude who's connected to a tree. It's, an, it's a crazy scene. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't... I, by the way, I was a little disappointed with the way they portray the three-eyed raven it seemed really lazy like you know in the book he's described as like he's grown into this tree kind of the only way i can think to describe it is like um in the second pirates of the caribbean movie oh the way they're in the ships. Have a, yeah 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 that davy jones there the crew members are kind of like grown into the walls of the ship well that's what they're part of the ship they're part of the exactly ship. yeah <laughs> Oh jeez! Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that's what. Yeah, that's what the three-eyed raven is supposed to be. He's supposed to literally be like part of this tree, but in here it just kind of seemed like he was hanging out in the tree. Yeah, like he was just in the sitting in the tree. He doesn't look that decayed. He just kind of looks like an old guy. Um, yeah, it was more. It was more Merlin-like. It seemed than. Uh... Yeah, very Merlin, which is cool. Like I like that. Yeah, and, and and I don't know this uh, this actor, but it, it should be interesting. So we haven't got any information about this guy either. He's just like, all right, well, you're going to fly, and then that's it. And the best I've got there is that maybe he's going to, and this is going to probably sound silly to you because I have no idea what's going to happen next, um, but short of him sprouting wings all of a sudden, Bran sprouting wings, I can I can only really see him maybe becoming, like being able to transform into an animal, like not just control an animal, become one, kind of like the Three-Eyed Raven. Uh, that's about it, though. That's all I got. Um, yeah, I guess we'll see. We'll see how that how that goes. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and so, and then we'll see how that, how that affects the story. Although, I gotta say this, while that could be cool, I don't really see the advantage. I, that's always been one of the strange things in fantasy to me, or like Animorphs, or whatever, and all these weird fantasy, science fiction-y things. Why would you want to become an animal? What is the advantage of that? What's the advantage of that, especially when you can control an animal? So the one benefit you'd get is no one suspects you're there, but why not just control an animal and keep yourself safe? You know, like you do as a warg. Uh, so that seems a little strange to me. But um, I guess we'll we'll see what they do with Bran. Um, I'm I'm just I'm just psyched that they have this whole other element going on with the uh, this other religion that turns out to be a real thing. Um, 
So that anyway, I think that's 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 very cool. Yeah, good scene. Uh, yeah, I'm also excited to see what they do with Bran because I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. You've got a little bit more, but then that's pretty much it. Uh, I got one chapter more. Right. Um, so that's exciting, and uh, so I was I was pumped to see that. Um, you're right. I did think, by the way, I did think that the way the Child of the Forest was introduced was a little odd. You know, like the, with the fireballs and all that. But I'm like, all right, whatever. Like, I, I would have been fine with, like, the Child of the Forest just standing at the entrance and, like, roots coming up and grabbing the skeletons. Like, that would have been cool. That would have made a little more sense. Yeah. It would have it made perfect sense. I don't know what the fire... Especially, the other thing that's problem, problematic with the fireballs is, you know, there's all these religions. There's the Seven, there's the Old Gods, there's the um, the Fire God, there's the Drowned God, right? Um, but the Fire God has the, you know, the Red God or whatever whatever he's called is, has... Um, is fire like that's all about fire and things like that with Melisandre? So if the Child of the Forest also has a fire, you know, there's fireballs, then it's like it's not the exclusive domain of this other god, but it's it would keep them distinct, you know. Uh, yeah, you're well based on just our cultural understanding of elemental magic, you yeah. know, based on every other fantasy series in existence. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the children of the forest should have uh, nature magic. Yeah, sure. They should be able to control plants, and yeah, like they should have roots should have been popping up and grabbing the skeletons. Um, it's weird. I don't. Maybe the fireball was just cheaper because they could just do, you know. Oh yeah, I'm. It looks. Dynamite. It's very easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier. But it yeah, would have looked weird. cool. So. Yeah, exactly. It looks cool. And um, that's, that's enough for me. Um. So and then I think the last uh, the last big thing is is this crazy crazy scene with Brienne and uh, and the Hound. Great scene, not in the books. Really, not at all. Really, really. Wow. <laughs> um, I loved it. I think it's a great scene. Wow, I, um, that's that's bizarre. Okay, so yeah. so how how does this play out in the books then? It. Well, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> the whole thing is that it, it, this two story, well, the Brienne storyline just never converges with them at all. It just, it's on a completely different track. It's, you know, never, because remember, I think I told you, Brienne never finds out that Sansa's in the Vale at all, so she's just kind of wandering around basically looking for people right. who have seen a girl who looks like Sansa. Um, and Arya's and, assumed dead, right? Yeah. What's weird about this is that uh, they were setting up the way they do it in the books, which is that the hound, uh, like a wound, gets infected, and so I or wait, I think that's correct or something like that. Um, and he gets uh, left to die by by Arya. It actually it might be a battle. I don't really remember that well how it goes down, but he, in any case, Brienne's not a part of it. Um, but yeah, she and, and she leaves him to die, and you know, there's all he does the whole thing where uh, he begs her for mercy and she doesn't give it. But by the way. Um, just to skip ahead a little bit to that moment, I loved how they didn't have her say anything because the show is, uh, it really gets on my nerves because they do this all the time when they have characters just explain how they're feeling in dialogue. Yeah. Uh, they do that so much, but this is finally like there's subtext to that scene. Yeah. Kind of like the Varys thing. Yeah, no, definitely. We have exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of that in this episode and which is really, I really appreciate it. Like the reason she leaves him is because you know and he says as much in the scene he says the butcher boy was begging me for mercy but i didn't give it to him so she doesn't give him mercy that's what that scene is basically but she doesn't have to say that she just has to be quiet and take his money and leave right right that's that's great. great yeah it's a great 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 moment um and 
Uh, I I thought that I just thought the whole thing was so interesting. I was sitting there going, "Oh, she's gonna walk away, and you're not. She's not gonna realize it's Arya, and then it's gonna be a a missed encounter, you know." Uh, uh, but but then the hound comes up, and she realizes, and it's like a huge thing. Um, the one thing I, I should I should say is that uh, I know I know uh, that little wolf cake thing she got was you know, it wasn't really meant to be given to Arya. Like, it was sort of like a wish fulfillment sort of thing. But, um, or like a, a, it was very unlikely she would be able to actually give this thing to Arya, but, uh, I was a little surprised that Brienne didn't, you know, whip it out and say, hey, look, uh, you know, I, I, I really am supposed to come and find you. Look, I was given this, this, uh, this emblem of your house and like, look, you should definitely come with me. Um, so I thought that was, a. Uh, that was sort of a missed opportunity, but then I, I realized it might have been attached to the horse, and so maybe they just lost it when the horses booked it, um, or whatever happened to the horses. It's not really clear either what happened there. Yeah, well, there's, I guess, you know, it's, they just ran off because Podrick can't tie a knot. Um, I, I did think that maybe they were going to have a, you know, a thing where they you know, there were some thieves who had stolen the horses, or maybe it was actually the Hound and Arya who had stolen yeah, the horses. Yeah, I thought that I might know. have been the case, yeah. Um, especially because Arya rides off on a horse at the end. Yeah, and so it's I not really maybe clear. maybe that's what they were doing, but, I, you know, I'm willing to accept that Podrick is just inept at tying knots. You know, maybe maybe Arya actually did take their horse. Maybe that is exactly what happened. And maybe that's why they, because otherwise, where did she get a horse? That's what I, that, that is what I assumed, yeah. They don't exactly show that or even imply it, but it makes more sense than anything else. Right. Um, so I thought that was, uh, but I thought that the whole scene was great. I thought the, um, the, the, the fight was awesome. That was probably the best fight in the show, I think. Ever, maybe. Um, uh, including the way it was shot. Um, just a really, really good fight. Not to mention the fact that we like the Hound a lot. He's a great fighter and, and we like Brienne a lot and she's a great fighter and seeing them fight was awesome. Uh, and also their, their dialogue and their back and forth was really cool too. Yeah. Well, Okay. <laughs> This is another episode that's directed by Alex Graves, okay. uh, who directed The Mountain and the Viper, and who directed that uh, scene, the rape scene with Jamie and Cersei. Oh, okay, yeah. So he is zero for two for me so far. <laughs> problematic scenes, and I don't... This You this, didn't like the way it was shot? No, it's so much fast cutting. The yes, random, it's like... I it's agree. Like for a half second, we're in a close-up, and then for the next half second, we're in the wide shot. You know, it's from a reversed angle. What are you doing? I agree. This is incomprehensible. The choreography is fantastic. The Again, choreography was fantastic, but it wasn't that it, it wasn't that I thought it was like beautifully shot. It was more that I thought it was capably shot to the point where we we had a pretty good idea of what was going on. It was better than the Mountain and the Vice. Yeah. Yes. Um, I guess this, my standards are a little low for this show in terms of flights. <laughs> <coughs> Yeah. But I think, well, they, yeah. uh, but you know, but you can't do every, you know, every show can't be, you know, a thirty-second long, you know, brutal kill, you know, like they do in Spartacus. Which again, I think it's fun. You know, I I posted this. Um, I posted it was a it was it was like a tweet or something. Uh, this gif a couple of weeks ago, and it's a it's a gif of two CG little robot characters fighting, and the and the choreography is awesome, and it's like some animation somebody made. And the camera just sits there as these two characters duke it out. And it's in three dimensions. It's not just two-dimensional. And I was sitting there I going... I that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and 
it was probably not the intention of the uh, the creator of this. I don't know. I, I don't want to pr- uh, presume to know, but I was looking at that going, why can't everyone just shoot fight scenes like this? What's so hard about that? I can see everything that happens, and it's awesome. Like, I know there are things you can do to, like, up the tension, um, but if you look at the best fight scenes in the best movies, they don't obfuscate what's going on for some reason to, like, give it more chaotic feeling or... I don't get it. I don't understand why you would shoot it any other way than either dead on, just a straight up, uh, you know, like a medium shot of the fight, or um, or maybe do a couple of cuts, but gradually and not really uh, that obtrusive, and just let the fight speak for itself. It's already exciting. You know, I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. What I assume it happened here is that Alex Graves does not know how to shoot an action scene, so he just covered it from a lot of angles and gave it to the editor and said, you figure it out. And <laughs> the editor kind of wanted to i don't know like just had to figure out how to work with all this material and make something comprehensible but in trying to do that it became incomprehensible because there's just too much material that that's that's kind of the assumption i'm going to make because based on what we got with mountain and the viper especially it was the exact same problem right yeah well uh, yeah i don't know why you're right it seems so easy to just put the camera down and let the flight play out but I wonder, if, you know, if there's some kind of or two, or two cameras, and then just cut back and forth between them, or something. I don't know. It's just the like it's like someone's running around with a camera as the fight's going on, and you're like, why? Why would anyone do that? That's so much work, and it's it's less good. Uh, it so, is, yeah, yeah, it's weird. It's yeah, it's, it's much harder to do, and it's much worse the, of an end product. Yeah. Whereas yeah. if you just put the camera down and let us see the choreography, it's so much easier and it's so much better. But is it just, I think maybe people just think it's more exciting if the camera's always changing and moving around and crazy whatever. That's that's probably what it is. is I think that is what it is, but it's, you know, um, it's sort of done without thought to the, uh, you know, yeah. I, I said this, I said this, um, I, I tweeted this, I think. Uh, I think it was, I said something like, discontinuity editing without intention just leads to, like, chaos and confusion um, but not in like a way that's meaningful, and it's 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 true. So so you know if you look at a sh- at a movie like I don't know, um, like Strike or or Battleship Potemkin or, or like any Sergei Eisenstein film or um, you know movies like that, or you know while they go overkill with the shaky cam, um, certainly the Bourne movies really do this well. I think I, I know the shaky cam is annoying, but that's another way of sort of adding to confusion without totally losing your bearings on what's going on. Um, but the way that it's working in a lot of, you know, people are looking at that and saying, oh, if I just, if I cut from one end of the room to the other, break the 180-degree rule, break all these rules, um, uh, then it's going to make it confusing. It's like, yes, it'll make it confusing, but not in a way that's positive for the viewer. What it does is it makes it impossible to follow what's going on. When they do it in strike and all that, it's all it's all done with... Um, this would it was with montage theory, you know. So, so if you're gonna cut from one place to the other, um, when they do that in like a let's say one of the scenes in Strike when they're trying to you know show like all this discord that's going on, they'll cut from a guy getting hosed down with water to you know a woman getting you know beaten by a policeman or to uh you know you know to a kids falling over in the street and crying and that's 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 adding a lot to what's going on you're really like you know emotionally it's doing something and you don't have your sense of where you are so it's it's sort of screwing with your emotional 
uh, where you're sort of your sense of space and you know you're sort of lost and don't know what's going on. That's very intentionally done. As crazy and chaotic as it seems, there's an intention behind it. If I just took a camera and shot a scene from 15 different angles and then just cut them together randomly, that doesn't do anything. You have to do it with intention. There has to be a there is a connectivity despite the fact that it's called discontinuity editing. There is an intention behind it. There is a continuity or uh, I guess a connectivity between the, the, the shots that are shown. And I think that's really the problem is that in scenes like this um, and I guess in the, in the Mountain of the Viper uh, and, and a lot of uh, modern action films, even Captain America, The Winter Soldier has this problem on occasion. Uh, it doesn't add anything because we can't even see what's going on and it's not done to like, uh, you know, to strike an emotional chord or to very methodically build up the chaos of what's going on. It's just random, and randomness is not adding anything to what's what's going on, in in my opinion. Yeah, well, I think um, the thing about Game of Thrones that I find is like the the story is what what makes it kind of unique is that it's so it's such a, a grounded take on this fantasy setting, right. and obviously that's not an original idea, but you know that's what it is. So when you have these very, you know, uh, these attempts at stylization in these fights, it, it ruins that. It, it makes it too artificial. And I think like, how about like, this is a stupid idea, but it would be kind of crazy and fun. The Dogma 95 version of Game of Thrones, you know, it's like remove all stylization from, from the proceedings <laughs> and make it just complete, just do it. And I think that would be more obviously. You can't, you cannot do that just by you know. There, there are dragons in this show. You have to, you need right, right, right. special effects. Um, but it would be more true to the nature of the show, I think. Um, and if there was a way to do that, if there was a way to have skeletons, real life skeletons, actors moving around, then that would be a fun way to do it. Or stop, you know, even stop motion would feel a little bit more. You know, there's a certain element. They should have done stop motion. Oh, that would have been so good. That would have been. Why didn't they do that? (laughs) Because it would have. It would have looked weird. I mean, stop motion has its place, and I think if you do it entirely in a film or show, it's it's one thing. But when you have really really nice CG and then stop motion, it seems very weird. Uh, It's a weird sort of. Having said that, the CG in this show, man, it's so good. Uh, For the most part, except for like certain scenes, like the. um, The transition from fire breathing from the dragons to fire in real... I think we talked about this at some point, is is often kind of rough. But um, but getting back to stylization, I think that... uh, I think I I would actually... It's funny that you say that, because I would actually prefer that this show took... It's like, as soon as they have to do anything that might require a little bit of thought or whatever, you know, where you're not just shooting a guy talking in a room, they don't know what to do with themselves. They just start tripping over themselves, and so you get scenes like you know, these fight scenes, which seem very chaotic in a bad way. And I think that that's that's because it's like they're hiring people who are really good at shooting drama and not people who are so good at shooting... You know, those are two different... Those those can be two very different skills, even when it just comes to cinematography, let alone, you know, how you're going to set that up and everything. Uh, So I think think that it might even behoove them to hire some more cinematic directors who are more, you know attuned to the, to like a, you know, a specific style or, or, um, uh, aesthetic that would really fit these scenes a bit better because the way they're doing it, you know, maybe, maybe hire, uh, you know, an, um, an assistant DP or somebody who just comes on for scenes like that, who's got, you know, some crazy resume that's, you know, uh, very, uh, 
attuned to to these sorts of scenes because there are people who are just they might not be good at other things but they're very good at combat um i think i, I mentioned before larry thong who does the uh who does the, all this stuff on for the Zack Snyder films. Those are gorgeous films, and all the combat comes across very clearly. The, chore- the choreography is very clear what's going on. Uh, so hiring somebody like that to just come and just, just film the action scenes, uh, and I don't mean him specifically, but somebody who's just whose style really fits that. Um. Well, that's why they got Neil Marshall to do Blackwater and The Watchers on the Wall, um, and that obviously, like... What's his background? Oh, he Well, he's a film director. Oh, okay. Um, and I don't remember, I'm not super familiar with his work. I think he did The Descent. I could be wrong, I could be wrong about that. That might be someone else. But, um, right, so but that makes sense. No, he did, yes, he did do this, The Descent. Okay, so that makes sense. So that's a, that's a reasonable thing to choose to uh, hire someone for. But, um, but it's funny that they chose him for that because those scenes require some cin- a cinematic touch for sure. Um, but it's still a grandiose action as opposed to like one-on-one fighting for the most part. Uh, I think I don't know. It just seems like they might be able to to find a consultant. You know, so here's a good example, actually, an an excellent example. I think um, there's a so you know in Avatar: The Last Airbender, and I I believe continued into Korra, uh, Legend of Korra. They have a combat consultant who consults on every single move, choreography, everything that happens. It's an animated show, and they have a guy whose um, entire job is to make sure that the uh, is to operate as a consultant to make sure that all of the fight choreography is fluid, clear, and comes across correctly and is representative of the whatever the different bending and the different styles and everything like that in that show. That's incredible, and it's a Nickelodeon show. Why is that so tough? And and I and I actually worry, and I'm going to be quite frank here. I actually worry that in this show there is somebody who is a choreographer who is the the main fight choreographer and and has is the main consultant on all of this. And they're getting lost in the shuffle because whoever's shooting it is not talking to them or listening to them at all. Um, so yeah, I find that very strange that as you know, this kid, sh- this ostensibly kid show, is able to be so clear with its its fight choreography, and that somehow this this advanced HBO drama isn't able to sort of keep up on that front. Yeah, well, you know, it makes me wonder if like I, the fights aren't going to be what's remembered from this show. I don't think. No, um, no, but, but when they but happen, they're so excuse. important. You're right. That's not an excuse. They're, they're important scenes. They are, but they're important for reasons that aren't, you know, the fighting. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, sure, the, they have um, a lot of meaning to them. No, for sure. I agree. Exactly, yeah. So they obviously, like, you know, that's not an excuse for doing them poorly. But I don't think that people are going to look back on the show in a decade or two and remember that the fight scenes are bad, you know? So I it's problematic for us maybe in the moment because it's irritating to have this kind of weird shoddiness and laziness on such a, on a show with such a grand scale. Right. But it doesn't bother me too much just in the grand scheme of things as a whole, because the moments we remember from the show are not those scenes. Well, Um, it's funny that you say that because, you know, for example, one of my favorite scenes in the first season, like I said before, was when Jamie and Ned fight that very brief duel. And it's like, really quick it's not a big but it's so it's momentous it's the big change where ned gets thrown in jail it's it's a big deal um but you know you you say that and yet i i agree that the things that we remember are like you know characterization and the drama and all these great moments uh great dialogue uh sometimes depending on the episode um but but if I think about shows that I've gone back to rewatch and I you know I hate to keep harping on, on on Spartacus but um 
if I go back and I rewatch, and I just did this recently, I rewatched the season three finale and the season one finale, um, or sorry, the season two finale and the season one finale, and they're both these big, big combat scenes, like huge, huge combat scenes, and they're they're gorgeously shot and they're very powerful. They only work because of what had been built up for a season. It's they're extremely emotional, um, and it, you know you always. It, you get very choked up watching because it's very sad and everything. Um, but they're a beautiful sort of uh, cap on characters who die and characters who, who live and characters who kill other characters. And, and it's sort of a uh, sort of the ending on a strong note type of thing. So if this is the end of the mountain, for example, it's a very emotional scene in, in that it's... Or it should be, conceivably. If they shot it maybe a little bit clearer or if they gave it a little bit more heft... Um, because he was but such an important character in relation to Arya, etc., etc., and so I, I just think that it's a little, it's a little, it, it, it's, it's, it's not that we won't remember the combat scenes. We won't because they're not that good. Um, but but they could be the things like the jewels that we get periodically throughout the se- the season, um, the series. Uh, and that's that's true of Avatar as well. You know, you go back and watch the finale, and you see that there's that big the big uh, Zuko Azula fight. That's one of the most, and it's important, and it it it's emotionally resonant because of what's happened prior to it. Um, but I think that that's we you do remember moments like that because it's so. And I know that show's much more focused on fighting, um, but you know you have these big things with the you know the mountain the viper that was gestating for a very long time, and that would mean more if we. Um, if it was like a truly beautiful and well well shot scene, and I still think the choreography was fantastic there, um, but I think that it's not that it doesn't ha- it doesn't have to be, but it it could be even better. Uh, it could be those moments that we do remember if they were to put in the the effort on that side. Uh, yeah, I don't I don't disagree. Um, it just doesn't it, it bothers me in the moment as we've talked about, but, you know, in the grand scheme of what this show is, um, having, and it's a weird thing to say about a show like this, because you assume that the fight scenes are going to be the the big draw, but I don't know, for, like, for me, they're not, they're not the big draw, they're not my, in my top ten favorite things about Game of Thrones, uh, and that's not, that's, that's not just because they're so often really bad, uh, it's because I just don't, that's not what I come to this show for necessarily. And, you know, like there are other shows that, that do that really well that, you know, but I think, but I think what it is for me is that, you know, there's only so much like barbed conversation and, you know, uh, stealth assassinations and all these things that you can throw into a show before you're like, I want to see these two people duke it out. You know, some of the best moments in, um, I can't think of a, a, a quick example, but you know, I would love, you know, I love the idea of a character, of two characters, like, this scene, actually, it's it's a great example, and it's so unfortunate that it's, like I said, I, I actually thought it was shot decently, um, uh, not great, but decently, but one of my favorite things about this scene is that they're fighting with swords, and then the swords stop becoming a thing, and they start just punching each other, and biting each other, and doing ridiculous things, and they get really aggressive about it, um, and when that sort of emotional, like, you know, like, screw it, I'm not gonna try and fight you anymore, this way I'm gonna just throw my gloves off and punch you in the face moments are really emotional and really good character moments and sometimes conclusions if the other character dies and I think that 
they can be very, you know, like I like that that Tyrion walked up and shot Tyr- uh, Tywin in the in the chest, but it would have been even cooler if he, you know, if he did something even more emotional, or like you know he punched him in the face, or you know what I mean. Like I think there's there's a certain amount of you know at this point, like all you've been waiting for this whole season is for him to just deck him, you know, and he doesn't, you know, he he shoots him, which is great. Um, but I think there's something there's something maybe primal about being able to see two people just go at it, and I think that there's um, it's part of human nature in a lot of ways, and it's cool to and since we can't do it in real life, right? We don't we don't do that at all. Um, and, you know, in modern society we're watching this fantasy show, you know, they should be able to, to, to duke it out every now and again. Do you think maybe that, do you think then that that's wasted on Brienne and the Hound, who are two characters who have, have no never, prior relationship? Yeah, yeah, yes, exactly. I do think it is, um, in that sense. Although I would say that, um, we do care about them individually. So while their conflict yeah, well, isn't as strong, um, if one of them's going to die, you are very, I was very tensely watching. I was terrified that Brienne would die or something. You know, I had no idea. Uh, you know, as a viewer. I know you knew, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. Well, again, this is such a weird scene uh, because it's an addition that is also not an addition. It's kind of emerging. It's it just not, not just a change, but it's a weird thing for them to do to combine a storyline, but also like have change one storyline, but also keep one storyline the same, but have them convert. It's hard, it, it's hard to describe, but... It was. I, I like this the way the scene plays out. I like the Arya and the Hound stuff. I like you know the well the episode ending on Arya sailing off to Bravos. Uh, yeah, no, I thought that was I thought that was really good. I think. And by the way, I think what you're looking for is it's it's similar to the brands the brand thing earlier where Jon Snow almost meets Bran in you know North of the Wall uh, at Craster's Keep, uh, where it could have happened. You know why not? Um, it's one of those sorts of things, but so it, it was funny though, <laughs> when, uh, Arya goes down to the boats, wherever she is somehow is close to boats and sees, uh, this captain and says, you know, take me to the wall because she's looking for her next of kin, of course. And, uh, he's like, I'm not going to the wall. And I'm like, okay, I wonder where else he's going. Oh, let me guess. He's going to Bravos. And then he's like, I'm going to Bravos. And I'm like, all right, yeah, of course he is. Uh, <laughs> there's only two places she was going to go. Right. Um, Unless they threw a total curveball out and were like, no, she's going to, you know, they're going to Karth or something. I'd be like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, but of course she's going to Bravos. That was like one of her big missions was to get to Bravos at some point. Um, and, you know, because of, you know, because of the first season and everything. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so I wasn't that surprised, but I thought it was awesome. Uh, I thought her using the coin was kind of interesting. Um, although I thought it was a little weird because... Using the coin to convince him to go to the wall where he wasn't going would be one thing, but she had money to pay for a ride over uh, to where he was already going to 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 Bravos. So I thought that was a little strange, but like kind of a a waste of using that coin. And it, she only has one, right? That token. It's only one time she gets to use it. Yeah. Um. So I don't I don't really get that either. I don't really get what that coin means or what it's about. Well, it's, yeah, well, it's, it is exactly how she used it, as far as we know. It's, like, just a token that somehow signifies whatever uh, Jack and Hagar was or a part of, uh, which is important in Bravos, I guess. We'll find out next season. Right. Which, you know, yeah, it's just just some kind of symbol, and obviously Valar... I, was I accepted it. I just Yeah, thought. I mean, yeah, it makes enough sense from what we have. Even right. If we don't know the specifics of what it means. What I do love about this season's 
this finale, I guess, um, is that uh, Daenerys has been on her own, basically, and now Jorah's gone, and it's not really clear where he's going or what he's doing, but uh, she was a separate thing, and, 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 you know, from the very beginning, people have talked about how weird it is to go from, you know, all this intense political drama going on in, in um, Westeros to, like, Daenerys, you know, getting sold to the Dothraki and all this weird stuff going on over there and her weird brother who's kind of cartoony and cartoonishly evil and um, and whiny and strange and, and and all this stuff going on in Essos seems so, I don't know, I guess, different and separate. Um, but now that we have two characters going to Essos in some fashion uh, is kind of exciting because at least they're on the same continent. Now we have characters split between the two. It's not just one character on Essos and everyone else is on... Um, is on Westeros. So I think that that'll be really cool in terms of dynamics for the show moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, it feels like a justification of all the time we spent on Essos so far. Right. Um, now we know just... everywhere except for Bravos. I guess we haven't been. Um, well, we have this season uh, with Stannis is going to the Iron Bank. Right, right, right. Very, very, very briefly. Yes, yes. And yes. they've kept Bravos in the opening credits since then all season, even though we haven't been back there. Which I guess <laughs> yeah, they're. Do you get the impression they're getting kind of lazy with that? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's been so um, frustrating. It used to be like, ooh, we're going to see a new place. Now it's like, maybe we'll see that place or not. <laughs> no, yeah, there's no, it has no bearing on what the places that the show takes place anymore. Has it even changed in the past couple episodes? I, I haven't like, paid attention, to be I honest. Mean, yeah, like Bravos is still in there, the Dreadfort uh, places that we haven't been to. It's, yeah. The opening credits have been a little disappointing, even though the individual things, like I love the Marine and Bravos uh, animation. I think that those are both very cool. Oh, they're they're fantastic, especially Marine. I thought Marine was awesome. I, I, the thing is, it could be so awesome to like you know to just every episode has. It, I know it's tough because it's like a full animated, fully animated thing, and every you know it's they probably started doing it in the beginning because it seemed like they were, and realized it was just a lot of extra work to change it every episode. Um, even if the animation's already there, they still have to make the cameras swoop around and go to the right places at the right time. Um, so maybe they just decided it was more trouble than it was worth, and it still looks cool, you know. Um, but yeah, I, uh, so I think that'll be really cool as we, as we go forward, uh, to see these two continents, uh, and the, the, the different stories going on in both. And also, our two favorite, now our two favorite, well, for fan favorites, characters are going to Essos to meet our other fan favorite character, <laughs> it might actually tip the balance in terms of who cares about what's going on in Westeros. I just realized if Tyrion, Arya, and Daenerys are all on Essos, I don't know if anyone's going to be all that interested in what goes on in Westeros anymore. <laughs> um, That's a good point, yeah. Uh, aside from, I guess, I know people like Jon Snow. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I think that about wraps it up. I thought it was a great final moment, like the, uh, the final shot, seeing Arya on the boat. It was a very well... The production value seemed very high there, um, so that was great. And uh, and it's two, it's two. Uh, we got, we got so that's two boat scenes too. We got with Tyrion and um, and Varys uh, leaving on a boat as well. So uh, it's very ocean 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 centric uh, moving forward. So what, what what would you what did you actually feel about this like as a as a finale? I know you had mixed feelings, but now that you've had a chance to process it a bit, oh well. Uh, abysmal adaptation. Very good. Very good episode uh, of television. That's, nice. Okay. I think that about sums it up. All right. Yeah, that's fair. I I wouldn't know about the adaptation part, but I thought it was a uh, very good episode. Not my favorite of the season, but great, great, great moments. 
uh, I thought I loved the the I love the Brienne Mountain meeting thing because it's like they keep it was only missed count encounters this season that it was great for someone to finally see someone else who they were looking for, uh, even if they didn't actually get to hang out because I think Arya and Brienne would have been an interesting pairing, uh, especially with Podrick. And the worst part is, you know, you know, Arya would have loved hanging out with them. They would have had a, a good time, I think. Although, spending time with the mountain seems to have made her a bit more callous and cold than she was previously. Like, as a younger child, she probably would have had even more fun uh, with them. She might be a little bit too... Because, like, Brienne, she's serious, but she, like, can smile and laugh and have a good time. It doesn't seem like Arya really does that anymore. Um, and Podrick certainly is, is a very sweet, sweet kid, so... Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was, uh, I thought that was great, and it was a great way to end the episode with Arya leaving to Essos, and I'm excited to see what, uh, what, how it plays into the beginning of next season. Uh, with this, I know you mentioned there was this cliffhanger, big moment that was supposed to happen in this season, uh, or in this episode. Um, do you think they can put that into the beginning of next season? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, absolutely. They have, well, they almost have to, I can't imagine a version of this show where that's cut, because it's a great scene, um... What I imagine is that it'll be kind of like what they well what they used to do. What they didn't do so much this season. What they used to do is they'd have a really big moment at the beginning, early on in the season, and then the big moment in episode nine. So I'm guessing early next season that'll be like maybe episode two, three, four. We'll get it. We'll we'll get that, um, and you'll know it when you see it. <laughs> but yeah, I'm well, I'm excited for it. I was a little disappointed they didn't do it because to me it fits in with this episode, but. Yeah, I yeah, you know what? I'm com- <laughs> I'm comfortable with this episode as it stands. Okay, all right, good. Yeah, and I enjoyed it too. So, um, yeah, it's been really fun uh, uh, discussing this uh, this season with you. Um, Absolutely, I'm looking forward to season five. Wow, season five. Jeez. Yeah, I know. <laughs> five of seven, apparently. By the way, we are nearing the home stretch of this series. Five of seven. Oh wait, they're only doing seven seasons total. Uh, that's what they're aiming for, yeah. Interesting choice. Um, okay. <laughs> well then, I don't, yeah. how can they do that? Uh, well, what they could do is next season, books four and five, then season six, book six, and season seven, book seven. But they've already uh, lost, they've already lost steam though, because they split book, what, three into two parts? Yeah, but books four and five, not a lot happens, which is the good news. Oh, okay, well, sort of good news, I guess. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so and I, the last thing I want to do is I just want to give a, a big old salute to um, uh, to Rose Leslie who played Egret because I thought she was awesome and she didn't get uh, fair showing in this season and then she died so whatever but <laughs> I thought she was great and uh, I just... miss Charles Dance as, as Tywin. Charles Dance, okay, there you go. Yeah, no, he so was good. he was awesome, awesome, awesome. But he had a lot of screen time in it. I thought, I thought but he he really he killed it. Uh, He's still my favorite introduction, I think, in this whole show of a character. Um, I think this is when he's introduced, when he's skinning the buck. In I the, think that's right, yeah. In the first season, and it's it's very symbolic, obviously, but in not a way that feels not in a way that feels um, on the nose. It's just very appropriate and very foreshadowy of what's going to happen next. I loved that scene, um, and it's also very hands on, and he's like supposed to be very rich and like he doesn't do like grunt work but he's just skinning this deer it's fantastic so yes charles dance also fantastic um so uh all right well thank you very much and uh i'm i'm glad we got to talk about this this episode and 
if we hear any more news about Game of Thrones, you know, should they announce some crazy prequel series or something, we'll certainly uh, we'll certainly have to talk about that. Absolutely. All right. Uh, have a good one.